Hello and welcome to the podcast for the July issue of The Lancet Infectious Diseases. I'm Richard Lane and this month I'm delighted to be joined by Peter Hayward from TLID. Welcome, Peter. Hi there, Richard. Let's start with the leading edge, the editorial, which this month covers uh, an ever-topical issue and that's to do with childhood immunisation. What's the peg to this leader, Peter? It's the perennial, and I'm not sure if favourite is the right word, but a perennial topic of uh, MMR vaccination reared its head again this month when the former head of the British Medical Association, Sandy Makara, tabled a motion for discussion at the forthcoming BMA conference that MMR vaccination should become compulsory for all children before they start school in the UK. And this was a, a motion that he's tabled as a suggestion for an effort to combat the rising incidence of measles. Just remind us how serious measles can be and the effect it has on children. Measles is primarily a respiratory disease and and thankfully is quite often quite mild, but complications can include diarrhoea, pneumonia, encephalitis and even death. In developed countries, the death rate is typically quite low, about 0.3%, but in some countries the death rate can exceed 20% of patients with measles. And the disease is a particular risk for immunocompromised patients as well. The proposal or the idea of compulsory vaccination against measles uh, or through MMR, at one level that seems like an obvious thing to do, given that there has been so much controversy and difficulty around this topic over the past decade. Isn't that just a simple way of, of, of sorting the problem out? But it's not actually that simple, is it? No, not at all. In the UK, we have a well-documented checkers history with the MMR vaccination itself. Despite overwhelming evidence that the suggesting that the vaccination is safe and will combat measles and the fact that it is also compulsory in several other countries for children to have it before starting school, we are quite rightly wary of making any medical intervention compulsory. Such a move goes against our sort of strongly held sense of freedom of choice and many people might on moral, religious or cultural reasons be against vaccination and forcing people to make a decision for their child with the threat of withholding education goes against our principles of civil liberty. So what's the bottom line from this leader? We at TLID certainly think that we need to increase the uptake of MMR vaccination as we've seen rising incidents of measles in the UK. We need to increase the uptake of the vaccination to ensure herd immunity and to prevent further increases in incidents. And we do need to be proactive in this. But compulsion with the threat of withholding schooling really can't be the way forward. Rather, we in medical publishing and researchers and the mass media all need to redouble our efforts to dispel the unfounded misgivings about the safety of MMR and to promote the benefits of this vaccination for the safety of children. Next, Peter, a review about sepsis. And this is always a challenging topic, but even more so in this review because it's looking at reducing illness and death from sepsis among mothers and neonates in less developed settings, particularly sub-Saharan Africa. I guess first off here, whenever one looks at this and maternal and neonatal survival, which we've covered a lot in the Lancet journals, you immediately think of the Millennium Development Goals, or MDG. So where does this issue sit within the MDG framework? This issue is strongly tied with the Millennium Development Goals in that two of the eight goals are directly related to the subject area. Respectively, Millennium Development Goals 4 and 5 are concerned with reducing child and maternal mortality. And what do the authors of this review uh, set out to do here? Anna Seal and her colleagues from Kenya and the UK have set out to identify the contribution of sepsis to maternal and neonatal mortality and by looking into this problem, to identify the gaps in our knowledge and also the potential approaches that we might have to reducing the number of deaths from sepsis in mothers and children. And what do we think are the estimates for the incidence of sepsis in both mothers and their newborn infants? 
Well, one of the most important, almost non-findings of the paper is, is that we don't really know the answer to this question. The estimates of the incidence of sepsis vary widely around the world and from study to study. Conservative estimates suggest that 10% of maternal deaths and 26% of neonatal deaths are caused by sepsis. But for both groups, these proportions can approach much higher figures, almost 40% in some studies. And the rates of sepsis and deaths from sepsis are inevitably much higher in developing countries than they are in developed countries. And Peter, what do we know about the causes of sepsis? The causes are, are many, and certainly when you look at the different types of microorganisms involved, the list, the list goes on and on for both mothers and children. The discrepancy between rich and poor settings shows that actually the root cause for sepsis and death from sepsis is actually a lack of resources. So given the multitude of organisms implicated in sepsis, what type of tactics, strategies, interventions should be prioritised for, for tackling sepsis, particularly in less developed regions of the world? Well, by looking at the differences between the rich and the poor settings, where there is a great difference between the number of children and mothers dying from sepsis, we can look at possible interventions used in rich settings that could be transferred to more resource-poor settings. What this review highlights is that areas such as providing proper antiseptic technique during delivery and also having access to antibiotics would likely reduce the number of deaths from sepsis. And are there any overall conclusions in addition to that that the, the authors take? Well, the authors conclude that that despite the dearth of evidence from settings with the greatest burdens of neonatal and maternal sepsis, reductions in mortality should be achievable by, by implementing known procedures that are already used in areas with low mortality. And finally, Peter, let's end with the review about cats and dogs, specifically, actually, and seriously, this is about the, the often very serious effect that cat and dog bites have on the human population. Peter, just, just map out the problem here. The first thing that struck me when I glanced at this article was that there are at least... 30 known uh, pathogens implicated here. Yes, Richard. As humans have evolved with their pets over the past 10,000 years or so, what's happened is that a set of organisms has grown that uses both as a host. That you, and these organisms pass between humans and animals and back and forth and back and forth. And they've gradually become adapted to both hosts. And so actually we find that there are a number of a great number of bacteria that live both on human skin and also on animal skin and fur and also within the mouths of animals. Interactions between humans and animals can transfer these potential pathogens. And clinically, Peter, what effects generally are these bites having on humans? Well, thankfully, most bites or scratches that are result from interactions between humans and their pets are, are relatively harmless, but some can actually lead to quite nasty and hard-to-treat infections, with some leading to septic shock, meningitis and endocarditis. And I see, interestingly, that MRSA is implicated in this context as well. Can you just elaborate on that? While MRSA is typically associated with hospital-acquired infections, certain strains seem to have become adapted to our household pets, and these seem to cycle, as I mentioned before, between the humans and animals and particularly certain community-acquired strains of MRSA seem to be particularly associated with dogs and cats. And although most are resistant to metacillin, they are also mostly susceptible to other readily available antibiotics, thankfully. What are the conclusions from the authors of this review? Overall, the authors conclude that the awareness of the possible complications from cat and dog bites is actually lacking both among pet owners and potentially also among physicians who might see them. And when faced with such injuries, doctors need to take not only a history of the people who have been injured, but also to inquire about the health of animals involved, since infections can easily be passed on with beastly consequences. Thanks very much, Peter. And just before we conclude on the content items for the July issue of TLID, 
You just want to mention briefly an update about H1N1. Since we have gone to press with our news desk item, various things have changed as far as H1N1 goes, with the World Health Organization raising the alert to phase six. And what this signifies is that community transmission has become sustained in more than one continent. And this now means that we are actually in a, that the outbreak has reached pandemic status. Furthermore, there has been the tragic news that the first death has occurred outside of the Americas when a mother who had recently given birth died in Scotland in the UK. And this is obviously tragic news. And this is certainly something that we will be following up in the Lancet Infectious Diseases. And just a reminder to listeners that recently we did set up here at the Lancet on thelancet.com a special microsite for information about the H1N1 pandemic. Peter, many thanks. Thank you very much, Richard. And just before we go, it wouldn't be a Lancet Infectious Diseases podcast without the editor, John McConnell, having something to say. So here is John talking about a very important new edition of an infectious diseases textbook. Over to John. I'm joined today by Dr. Gerald Mandel. Dr. Mandel is the Professor Emeritus at the University of Virginia School of Medicine. He was previously the director of the ID program at the University of Virginia. He's also the former president of the Infectious Diseases Society of America, a counselor of the National Institutes of Health, and a member of the Institute of Medicine. Dr. Mandel, of course, is the founding editor of the Principles and Practices of Infectious Diseases, which is the book that we're going to be talking about today, because this year, 2009, is the 30th anniversary of the first edition of the book, and the seventh edition will be published later this year in September. So your book, Dr. Mandel, it's it's celebrating its 30th anniversary. Can you just give me a flavor of how you think it's changed from the first edition? Well, it's changed markedly. It's very interesting for us to look at the first edition and look at the seventh edition. And infectious diseases is an amazingly dynamic specialty in that if you examine the two books, you'll see, first of all, lots of newly recognized diseases. I don't want to say new diseases because they probably existed, but they weren't recognized. Some diseases are sort of new in that the genetics of the microbe allowed major changes. And an example is, of course, this recent swine flu that we're undergoing, the H1N1 swine flu variant, and we have that very well covered in the new edition. Also, things like multi-drug-resistant tuberculosis is a somewhat new disease and that in the past we could treat it with just a few drugs. Now we're losing some of the drugs that we use. In addition, therapies have changed markedly. There are literally scores of new agents, antibiotics, immunotherapies, probiotics, hyperbaric oxygen that are much better understood and that are new comparing the first edition with the seventh edition. Yes, I mean, I'm struck by how uh, antibiotic resistance is a, is a pandemic we, we don't talk about when H1N1 <laughs> makes it onto the front page of the newspapers. Could you give me an idea of the, the typical challenges that you think uh, an ID specialist faces every day and how principles and practice might help them carry out their job? Well, when an ID specialist is called to see a patient, usually there's something special about the patient. Either he has a severe or unusual infection that's known, or he has an illness that is not known and may be manifest by fever or rash or cough or something. So the infectious diseases specialist has to first make a diagnosis as far as syndrome 
then make a specific etiologic diagnosis and then decide what the appropriate and best therapy is. The book will help in each one of those steps because it's so comprehensive. One of the things that we've been excited about from the beginning is the way we've organized the book in that it's double coverage without over-coverage in many instances. For example, if you look up pneumonia, you find a discussion of various etiologies, including pneumococcal pneumonia. But if you look up the pneumococcus, which is a separate chapter, you can find that this organism is well covered, including the basic sciences, and pneumonia is mentioned and discussed in depth, but also syndromes such as meningitis are discussed. And without that double coverage, it's very hard to get the full concept of the disease. So, so can you tell us about some of the new chapters which appear in the seventh edition for the first time and uh, perhaps talk about how you identified the, uh, the authors to write the various chapters and about the range of international contributors that you have? Well, the new chapters, are when you compare the seventh with the first, are large number. When you compare the sixth with the seventh, it's a smaller number. But as I said before, even though the same chapters are there, there are extensive revisions. For example, in the book, there are many references from 2009, which show how up-to-date these chapters are. We have a number of chapters related to infection control in the hospital, antibiotic resistance, and travel medicine, infections in immuno-impaired patients such as cancer patients, a lot of new information about HIV, AIDS, travel medicine. There's exotic pets which can be responsible for certain infections, and of course, a markedly expanded coverage of bioterrorism agents, which we hope will never be used, but the infectious disease specialist has to know about them. To answer your second question, the choosing of the authors is very, very important to us, of course, and what we do is we utilize the knowledge of the three main editors and also review the literature and see who we would recognize as the world's experts, the absolute experts. And we've been very happy over the years to see that these experts agree just about unanimously to contribute chapters. The experts come from all over. I was just counting them up. They come from 27 countries, and they are responsible for 31 of our chapters, about 10% of our chapters. Of course, the majority of the authors come from the United States, where the editors come from. Could you perhaps tell me something about your your two co-editors, Dr. Bennett and Dr. Dolan? Yeah, both of them are are distinguished physician scientists, and Dr. Bennett has been at the NIH for literally decades, where he's been head of various groups. He is a clinician scientist, does research, does teaching, and does clinical practice. He is clearly recognized as the number one authority in the world on fungal diseases. Dr. Dolan is at Harvard Medical School, where he is a Maxwell Finland uh, professor of infectious diseases. And Maxwell Finland was one of the greats of infectious diseases, and Dr. Dolan is very proud to hold a chair named in Dr. Finland's honor. He is a renowned expert in viral diseases, HIV, AIDS, and immunization. So we have experts really in three major categories. 
Bennett being an expert in fungal disease and chronic infections, Dolan being an expert in viral diseases and AIDS, and my special interest is post-defense and antimicrobial therapy. And between the three of us, we have the ability to select authors and carefully review the chapters submitted by the author. Okay, so could you tell me, and am I, am I right in understanding that all the chapters have been completed and, and submitted this year so that they are bang up to date? Yes, yes. Every chapter has been heavily revised and looked at by the author, the editors, the editors again, and then sent off. I, I was looking at it the other day, I'm not sure if your listeners and readers are interested in this, but the process is amazing. We first make up the table of contents. We pick the authors. The authors send their chapters to the editors. The primary editor sends it to the other two editors. Those editors give suggestions and send it back to the primary editor who sends it to the compositor, who sends it to the proofreader, who sends it back to the author, who sends it back to the editor, and finally gets to the publisher. So it's an amazing process. It allows for the chapter to be very, very up-to-date, complete, and error-free. Sounds like a, a very rigorous process indeed. Tell me, what sort of feedback did you get on the, the sixth edition of the book, and how have you built that into the, to the new edition? Well, the feedback was, was very positive, and honestly, I really can't think of any major criticisms that we incorporated in the seventh edition, except make sure it stays up-to-date which we have done to the best of our ability and to the best of the author's ability. The way that process of editing proceeds, the authors have a chance, for example, this being May and would go into June, to add new references for the September publication. And of course, the new references not only will be references, but they'll change the text. So the swine flu example will have a section on swine flu that didn't exist before. And I understand that the versions of the book will be available in a website form as well. Is, is that correct? Yes. There'll be a website and there'll be the ability to update information as, as time goes on. In the sixth edition, we attempted to and usually succeeded in adding what we felt was very pertinent information to each chapter at least once a month and sometimes more if something urgent came on the horizon. Just going back to the, the additions, uh, the additions to, to this new version of the book, is there, is, is there anything that's really surprised you? Uh, is there anything that, you, that you've been surprised that you've had to write a chapter about or, or that's required radical revision to a chapter in, in the world of infectious diseases? Well, I can't say it surprised us, but if you go down the table of content, which is 330 chapters, you can realize that uh, many, many chapters have information that is entirely new. So, for example, the probiotic chapter, the human genetics and infection chapter, the as we talked about, some of the new antimicrobial agents, and complete expansion and revision of the common problems such as urinary tract infections. I should imagine that over the last couple of editions, you've had to completely rewrite chapters on or, or just even add back in, if it were, chapters on things like smallpox and monkeypox, SARS, which, which nobody had heard of before 2003. Yes, you're exactly right. And some of the old diseases are requiring focus because of the bioterrorism danger. So as you point out, the diseases that we sort of forgot about now are possible bioterrorism agents. 
So can I just ask you, and this is a question almost uh, from my own interest, can I ask you what you think about the, the future of antimicrobials and, and where we are with antibiotic resistance and you know, what our chances are of continuing to have a therapeutic armamentarium to combat everyday infections and those, of course, which we, we need to allow modern transplant medicine to go on, for example? Yes, excellent question. And the genetics of the microbes is amazing, and they can change to resist infections. Of course, they can pass genes from one species to another to increase resistance. So the challenge is, what do we do? One thing we've learned is that occasionally combinations of antimicrobials will handle resistant organisms and resistant infections. The other thing is is an interesting philosophic concept, and that is the pharmaceutical companies in some cases are reluctant to spend a lot of money in research and development on antibiotics. And the reason is that it's much better for them to have a drug like a statin that you take for 10, 20, or 30 years than an antibiotic that you take for five days. So it's hard to convince them financially that uh, they should put a lot of money into, into research and development. Some of this lack is taken up by academia, and I suspect that as time goes on, governments around the world are going to get more involved, give incentives to pharmaceutical companies, and expand the grant system, which will allow that to happen in academia. Of course, now with the, the sort of textbook which you're producing, you don't have much of an, of an opportunity to editorialize really on these subjects, but you've got a forward to the book. So what sort of themes are you going to, you're going to take in the forward to the new edition? Well, the forward that we have in draft really does two things. It talks about the new information you already asked me about, your diseases like multifocal leukoencephalopathy and the SARS and the new swine flu. And it also mentions the fact that we have international authors and 330 chapters. But also, I think this is very important in the present web era. People say, well, why have an infectious disease book when I can just go to Google and look up SARS? And, of course, you can do that. But we feel that the fact that the information is filtered and analyzed by experts and then reviewed by the editors makes it a very different kind of information. The knowledge and experience of the world's authorities with careful review by the three editors makes the information a lot more valuable than just looking up some facts. No question the Internet will give you some facts, but it may not give you the perspective that the web-updated version of our book will be and, of course, the, the major